Hello, welcome back to A Functional Approach with Dr. Jim Chaltis, and I am Dr. Jim Chaltis, and today I want to touch on a topic that is, a, is sort of a, a hot topic in the functional medicine world, perhaps, or in alternative medicine, um, and people that are out there kind of looking online and, and possibly self-diagnosing, and, and that has to do with the adrenals, the adrenal glands, and, and what I hear thrown around quite a lot is the phrase, you know, I'm, I have adrenal exhaustion, perhaps, or I have adrenal collapse or adrenal fatigue or something like that, which really brings to mind this notion that the adrenal glands themselves are just tapped and they don't have the capacity anymore to, to provide their adrenal hormones and, and, um, and support the system, right? And so therefore fatigue and you know, all this stuff sets in. Um, it, it could be, it could be the case that, that that's going on for a, a person, but at the same time, it's, it's much too general. You know, we need to know very specifically what's going on with the adrenal system and if it's even the adrenal system at all. I mean, you can have a whole series of, a, of symptoms that look a lot like what might present as adrenal fatigue, but have nothing to do with that. It could be a thyroid concept or a blood sugar concept or a neurological concept or an immune concept, you know, for example, right? So, you know, this notion of I have adrenal fatigue is, is just needs to be unpacked a little bit, right? It's, it's rarely ever that simple. So I want to start by kind of just um, explaining a little bit for those of you who, who don't know, um, you know, what, what is the adrenal system, what, um, you know, what hormones come from the adrenal glands, why are they there, um, you know, what do they do for us? <laughs> so the adrenal glands, simply put, are like little hats that sit right on top of your kidneys. You know, so there's, there's two adrenal glands, one on each kidney, provided that you still have your kidney. Um, some people have lost one, perhaps. But, um, but in, in normal um, physiology, there are two adrenal glands, and they are named after their most, I suppose, well-known hormone, adrenaline. Another name for that is epinephrine. And I think we've all had that experience before of what epinephrine is all about. Um, you know, maybe you have... Uh, a confrontation, you know, somewhere on the street with a group of thugs and, and it's scary, right? Um, you are going to have an adrenaline surge, right? That is a stress hormone. Um, the other name for them is in, called catecholamines. So the catecholamine class of, of you know, hormones tend to be kind of excitatory and they tend to kind of lift you. But, but with the adrenal glands, especially... Um, adrenaline or epinephrine, same thing, it's going to give you what you need to fight or to flight, of course. We know that term, fight or flight. Um, it's going to, you know, open your eyes a little bit. So you're going to see things like the pupils dilate to let in more light. Um, so you can capture more things in your environment because, hey, you're about to get um, jumped by a group of thugs, heaven forbid. Um, and you better see things happening at a, at a quicker, more you know, accessible rate, right? So, so our vision definitely responds to this, to this hormonal surge. Um, you're gonna get changes in blood pressure and pulse rate, right? You're gonna need more blood flow. You're gonna need more oxygen to your tissues. You're gonna, you know, you need to clear carbon dioxide better so you can fight or flight. I don't know if you've ever been in a fight, but it is quite exhausting. Right, you you gas out pretty quick, <laughs> um, so having that kind of um, 
that support, that hormonal support to give you that extra umph so that you can do what you have to do um, is, a, is a life-saving concept. Right. Um, it goes beyond that. You know, it can help you against injury and, and, and things like that. And, and it can even dampen pain, which is an important concept, too, if you are um, in, a, in a serious situation, perhaps injured, and you need to survive. Right. So we all know adrenaline. I, I think that in some cases, people's adrenaline gets triggered a little too easily, perhaps. There could be past trauma that they are triggered by. Um, you know, it, it, it could just be the way that their nervous system is tuned. Uh, I will definitely get into more of the neurology behind stress physiology and, and how that works. That'll be a, a designated topic for sure. Um, but not everybody tolerates these stressful environments the same, of course. Right? Some people are going, are going to trigger real easy and they're going to be riding this adrenaline surge constantly and, and that's not healthy and that's not happy and that's not a good way to be. Um, what happens is with the circulatory system is when we're under stress, we start to shunt blood away from our internal organs, right? And more into our limbs. We want to have blood into our limbs so that we can, you know, do what we have to do in that environment. Um, also, let's just say you end up getting poked with a knife or, or, or something like that or bitten by a wild animal and, and your organs are going to, um, you know, potentially have less blood in them to lose as well. So there are, there are, you know, protective concepts here at play, but chronic stress physiology can be a, a whole other story. You don't, you don't want to constantly be shunting blood flow away from your organs, right? You want to nourish your organs and help them function and flow and, and do what they have to do. So that, that's kind of step one with the adrenal glands is just, I, I named adrenaline first just because it's sort of the namesake of the gland. Adrenal. Um, what people are meaning when they're saying, I have adrenal exhaustion, is not really relating to adrenaline, but more to its sort of weaker, I guess, cousin, still a catecholamine, still in that stress physiology hormone family. Um, but we, we're talking more about cortisol. Uh, cortisol is uh, has a lot of the same properties as adrenaline, just like I said, much, much uh, gentler on the system. And we tend to have a, what we would call a circadian rhythm with cortisol release. You can't just take your cortisol level any old time of day and expect it to be the same, you know, eight hours later. It's, it's very dependent on things like our sleep cycles and our our blood sugar and you know time of day and sunlight hitting our eyes and um, and there's lots of things involved so the cortisol circadian rhythm is really what we need to to discuss here when we're talking about fatigue right and my adrenals are fatigued are they or are you just going through funny circadian rhythm patterns that make you have symptoms I, I don't know um, we can only test and find out so, you know, a, a typical test out there, I would say, in, in sort of the mainstream, if they even looked at cortisol, um, which they don't tend to unless there's, you know, significant issues going on, in my experience at least. Um, but they'll test it with, along with like a fasting glucose, a fasting blood sugar. You'll get a fasting cortisol, and that's a very important piece of information because you are at a fasting state. It's been the longest of your 24-hour cycle most likely, uh, that it's been since you've had food. And 
So your blood sugar should be kind of naturally tending to drop by morning time. Um, but we can't have our blood sugar drop too far. We really don't want it to drop too far because if it's too far, then our, our systems start to falter. Just like I spoke about many episodes ago on, on the blood sugar concept, when you're having a hypoglycemic reaction, a low blood sugar reaction, I mean, your brain function declines, your fatigue sets in, and you know, if you pick your organ or your tissue, it doesn't have its primary fuel, and therefore it can't really thrive as easily. Of course, there are ways around this mechanism, but it's not so easy just to you know, snap into something else like ketosis, unless your body's very, very used to doing that. Um, so that's fine and good. We just got a morning fasting cortisol. It does tell us how am I in my, you know, kind of my, my most stressful moment of my day as far as my blood sugar is concerned. And low blood sugar dips are stressful. You know, it's, we need cortisol to start to come up when we're fasting so that we can liberate stored sugars that we have in our liver and in our muscles. We store sugars in a form of, um, I guess, carbohydrate called glycogen. Glycogen is not a, a readily accessible form of fuel. It's, it's in a different chemical form that's in storage. So we have to go through processes in our physiology when we need it, when we're in a state of fasting, and, and sleeping definitely counts as that, um, where we, we start to liberate, we start to excrete cortisol. And that gets the ball rolling. You know, it, it's, it's an essential part of the system that helps us start to break down stored forms of sugar, glycogen, and create glucose out of it, which is what we can get into our bloodstream and get into our cells and, and then, you know, drive our cellular respiration process to give us ATP, which is the energy molecule that we require for life. That is our fuel. So um, it's important to know kind of how we're doing in a fasting state, but that doesn't tell us everything, not even close. That has nothing to do with circadian rhythm. It's just a snapshot in time at, let's say, seven in the morning when you got up for your fasting test and you're standing in line with all the grumps who are also fasting, all right? Good to know, but not the whole puzzle. So with respect to the circadian rhythm, what we want to see throughout, uh, you know, a waking hours of your day at least is cortisol levels to be relatively higher in the morning fasting and then as you eat throughout your day however that is for you you're going to have blood sugar in your system from a meal source right food and so as you do that you're going to utilize some right away you're going to burn it for energy but your body knows that it's going to be time for sleeping soon, and hey, we, we don't know, maybe the famine is about to happen tomorrow, so we better have some reserves on hand. Uh, you know, you never know how long it takes to get another deer if you're like a hunter-gatherer type person, right? You might go three, four days before you eat a real meal. So our body has this wisdom that, that keeps us sort of primed for those lean times where food isn't as accessible. That's the job of insulin, <laughs> aside from giving you, you know, kind of the, the ability to, to drag sugar from the blood into the cell, which is what insulin does, but it also promotes the storage of fat, right? It's, it promotes the storage of, of things in our system so that we have reserves. So you eat a meal, 
you know, maybe it's a lovely croissant or something, right? And you get this burst of glucose and uh, your, your insulin levels go up and you burn some and then you store some away. And, um, and then you just kind of do that, right? So as you go through your day, by the time, you know, dinner time, like after dinner, your, into your evening goes, your cortisol levels really should be at their lowest time of the day because you've been eating like a very, um, you know, <laughs> what, lucky individual all day, most likely in this country. You have not gone short of food and you have been eating readily. And so your, your, your need for breaking down those stored sugars is very low. So morning time, you should have a nice high cortisol because you're fasting and you require a stable blood sugar 24 hours a day, no matter what. And as you eat and as you go through the day, and by the time you go to sleep, it should be this nice, pretty little curve that just sort of is, is lowest, you know, somewhere between 10 p.m. and midnight, right? Now, that's kind of where the testing tends to stop clinically, for, for us at least. Um, I'm sure there are specialty ways of doing it, but, um, but it, when you're sleeping, you can't just be submitting yourself to like multiple tests throughout your night. In fact, waking up all the time and interrupting your sleep will probably alter your, your cortisol and your stress physiology rhythms. So clinically speaking, we have you know, this kind of 12-ish hour window to appreciate how the system is functioning. And so high in the morning, low at night. Now, the, the blank part of that statement is what happens while you're sleeping? Well, you're not eating, hopefully, and then you, your cortisol levels will gradually go up, up, up. And so right before you wake up in the morning, you should have the highest level again. So you have this sine curve, right? That's our circadian rhythm. It's this, everything is timed off of that rhythm. I mean, literally, it's a massive timekeeper for us. Our sleep cycles, so cortisol, and melatonin, many of you have heard of melatonin. Some of you might take it supplementally. I don't necessarily agree, which is a good reminder for another podcast. I will talk about melatonin. Um, but naturally speaking, when, when we're not actually supplementing with, with melatonin, um, you make melatonin out of things like cortisol, and it has to do with serotonin levels, right? So they all kind of merge into each other, and as cortisol levels are low at night, your melatonin levels can come up at night, which gives you what? Gives you a nice peaceful sleep, right? The concern I have with melatonin supplementation is you cut that feedback system and you artificially um, impact that, that whole cycle so that the body doesn't have that smooth fluid, you know, transfer of, of hormones from one to the other. So uh, I will talk about that another time. Now, as you're sleeping and your, um, your cortisol levels start to come back down, I'm sorry, go back up, your melatonin levels come down, your cortisol levels start to climb. By the time it's morning time, your cortisol should be at its highest, right? And that is a stress hormone, right? And what do stress hormones do? They make us alert, right? More alert. Adrenaline makes us alert because we don't know if there's a fist flying at our face or... <laughs> Cortisol makes us more alert by just sort of, hey, it's time to wake up. It's one of our awakening responses. There's something called the cortisol awakening response, actually, and it takes place right from the moment you open your eyes and that light hits your retina and your optic nerve and it fires into a part of the brain called the tectum and that sets in motion this whole chain of events that really does set the timing for the rest of your day. 
So people that have sort of a blunted cortisol awakening response might not have a good cortisol response the whole rest of the day as a result. So ideally what happens is if you take your cortisol right upon waking and then you know 30 minutes later, you should have like a 50% increase in, in cortisol levels in the first 30 minutes. If you don't have that, it's less than 50, then you have a, a blunted cortisol awakening response. And that's something that we need to work on because lots timed off of that. Um, once that's over, then you kind of go along that little, um, you know, the, the pretty little curve thing I described, <laughs> the sine curve. So I guess it, our, our whole rhythm is a sine curve with like a little, a little blip in it right before and right when we wake up. Uh, so there's panels that can help us look at all these things. And one thing about cortisol is it does come through quite readily and reliably um, in the saliva. So there's different ways of testing hormones in our blood and our urine and our saliva. Um, and they're all appropriate, but for different things, you know, gold standard tends to be blood for most things. Um, so you don't see a lot of saliva testing going on sort of in the mainstream model, um, sometimes, but I don't see it very often. Having said that, you know, the, the labs that do offer this cortisol testing do tend to, um, validify their solidify, I think I always say that word, validate their, um, their results along with blood. But, you know, who wants to go get six blood pokes, you know, blood draws in a day just to check their cortisol circadian rhythm? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's not very realistic to do that. Um, most people are generally willing or happy to provide, you know, a couple milliliters of saliva multiple times a day. And, uh, and that's just a really great way to, to capture this rhythm and it blows out of the water this notion of like, what is my morning blood fasting cortisol level? An important piece, but not the whole piece, right? So um, we, we need to see this rhythm to appreciate what's going on. Okay, so that was, you know, sort of my 18 minute uh, approach at, at kind of describing sort of what are the adrenals and how do we look at them? Uh, there is one more, I take it back, there's one more. Um, there's a hormone called DHEA, which comes from a slightly different part of the adrenal gland. And DHEA has its own functions, um, but it can also be kind of like a, a precursor to other hormones like sex hormones. It's in the androgen family. It's, it's kind of related to testosterone in a lot of ways, but it can be converted into testosterone or estrogens or, you know, all those things. So it's, it's um, sort of a way that our, our, our bodies have to compensate and provide hormone support in other ways besides the primary gland, right? In those case, sex hormones. So it, when DHEA goes down, that's very kind of su suggestive of something with the gland itself, okay? I want to just leave off with that. I don't want to talk too much about DHEA. It doesn't have as much to do with this notion of circadian rhythm and, and you know, as much as I'd... You know, you might think um, it, it can have to do with adrenal collapse um, in some cases. So when somebody comes in and says, I have adrenal exhaustion or adrenal fatigue, what they're really talking about is, is their theory that if we were to run a cortisol panel, like a full day test, um, that their line would not be this pretty little high in the morning, low at night curve, but it would be flat and it would be low the whole day. 
That would be sort of what you would call adrenal exhaustion or adre adrenal fatigue. The trouble I have with that term is that it's, it's very, what, suggestive that the adrenal gland is the problem, that the, that the poor gland is just fatigued, right? There, there was studies done many years back by a scientist called Hans Selye, and he has this model of stages of adrenal health, and it goes from optimal to kind of collapsed state, and it goes in this very linear fashion, stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, right? And, and that was sort of the model for a long time, and, and it still kind of is. However, it's been debunked. It's been outdated now. It's not as simple as that. Some people do go through those stages. Yes, it is It is possibly true for people, but that's sort of where these, this notion of, oh, I'm tired, I have adrenal exhaustion, comes from. Comes from Hans Selye's work. And it's outdated, right? It, it, the reality is you can have all manners of disharmony in the adrenals at any stage for lots of reasons, and it can change, and you don't necessarily have this, this progression. So... Let's just say somebody has normal fasting cortisol, right? They do it on a blood test, everything looks great, but they're still curious because they feel like they've got fatigue and they don't believe their doctor. So they go to an alternative doctor, they get a saliva test done and they do the whole study and they see normal morning cortisol, all right? So <laughs> they're, they're still looking good, right? But the whole rest of their day is, is craziness, right? Maybe they're dipping below the reference range by, by noon, or they're, everything looks great morning, noon, and then their afternoon, they have this big bump in the middle of their, of their thing, and then they go down to like low in the evening time. So they've lost their circadian rhythm. They're expressing cortisol at random times of the day inappropriately, right? And cortisol... It's a stress hormone. It can change things like heart rate and blood pressure and how fast you burn up your blood sugar, right? Um, if it's too low, you can't liberate stored sugars from your cells, from your liver and your muscle tissue. So if you are dipping low cortisol too often, then you might not be a person that can tolerate very long times between meals, right? That's not adrenal collapse, right? It's not adrenal fatigue. It's just inappropriate circadian rhythm. There's something called the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access, HPA access. And this basically explains the pathway of, of this physiology. Hypothalamus is found in the brain. It's a major regulat regulating area of our brain for a lot of our autonomic systems, things that happen in the background. Um, so hypothalamus, pituitary, that's the master gland located just under the brain, kind of right between your eyes and right between your ears. It regulates all the glands, thyroids, adrenals, testes, ovaries, right? Um, and then the adrenal. So it, 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 all those things are talking to each other. There's a feedback, a constant feedback loop, right? So if somebody has, let's just say, a flatline low cortisol and they're just and their, their total cortisol output for the day is just very low. They will be fatigued and they will probably be struggling with low blood sugar most of the time because they just, they can't, their meals just burn right through them and they don't have any way of storing their reserves and they're depleted. So they just, they feel like garbage, you know. Um, that's very suggestive of 
the hypothalamus, the brain, right? Not the adrenal glands, but the brain is not triggering the cascade of events, right? So there are certain diseases that can either inhibit the hypothalamus or overstimulate the hypothalamus to trigger this whole, you know, cascade of, of events with respect to the adrenal system. Uh, one very common one is actually people that have high cortisol levels. They also have fatigue because high cortisol levels usually trigger insulin resistance, right? So does eating, you know, donuts and drinking soda all day. That's usually how it starts. So you get all this sugar in your system, you get these bursts of insulin that come with it and your insulin is chronically high. Insulin triggers the hypothalamus to tell the pituitary, to tell the adrenals to make cortisol. So an insulin resistant, and especially a type two diabetic uh, person, will tend to have high blood sugar, high insulin, and high cortisol. High cortisol, actually starts to desensitize the insulin receptor even more. So now you have a vicious cycle, a feed forward vicious cycle that doesn't necessarily just turn off by itself. So sometimes when you're working with like, let's say the diabetic population, you can't just fix their diet and lifestyle. Sometimes you need to give that adrenal system, that HPA access, a little kick in the pants, right? To get that going again. and doing all those things together and sometimes even working with sex hormones because they can also throw a monkey wrench into the game. So doing them all together helps. So one thing I'd like to do here with these, this podcast series and what I like to do in my practice is challenge you because you only know what you know and what you read, but I can tell you most of the time it's just a little too simplified. It's what's the herb, what's the formula, what do I do you know, that one thing for my adrenal fatigue. Oh, my cousin, she has the best formula. It, it's awesome. This is what she did for hers, you know. Great, but her mechanism is different than yours. So there is no answer to that. I, you'll hear me repeat this over and over again. What supplements for this particular case? I don't know. I don't know yet. There are a ton of things we could possibly do or you could do, but you better nail your mechanism, right? And if it's something suppressing your brain or triggering your brain, uh, it's not a problem with your adrenal glands. So going on, let's say, uh, you know, glandulars, adrenal glandulars, or some kind of a hormone replacement for the adrenals, it's not solving the problem. It's not a functional approach, right? It's a replacement approach. It's short-sighted. It might dig you out of a hole that's very deep, and it might be a valuable piece of your process. Just don't be satisfied with it, because taking external things like hormones will tend to dysregulate the HPA access or the ones with the sex hormones or what have you, right? So in a functional approach, we want to try to get to those mechanisms very clearly and efficiently and start working on them and, and unwind them, right? And, and that might take some time. You know, if somebody is struggling with, um, you know, low blood sugar and, and their adrenals are, are not responding to the, st the stimulation and their, you know, cortisol levels are artificially low for some reason and, you know, they need caffeine to keep going, you know, in some cases that caffeine might be a really, really bad idea. It's going to get them through to work and get them through their day. 
but what is a stimulant anyways? I don't care if it's caffeine or methamphetamine or what have you, right, or Adderall. Um, you're feeling that lift because it's giving you stress hormones, right, artificially. It's whipping and beating those glands into submission, you know, and, and making them perform even when they're, they're not able to naturally. So I'm not against caffeine. I think coffee is a fantastic herb and, um, and it, it should be used, but we need to know when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate. All right. And, uh, you know, a, a cortisol salivary type panel, um, can be a very helpful tool to figure that out. They cost on average 150 to 160 bucks. Um, take a couple weeks to get the results back. I use two companies depending on what's handy. And, and they've got slight differences, but I'll use Genova uh, Diagnostics um, or, um, or Diagnostex Labs. Um, either one, I find, uh, are going to give you what you're looking for. And it'll be between four to six vials of saliva uh, in, a, in a, you know, waking hours of your day, kind of a collection thing. So um, very interesting stuff there. And you know, on closing, I just kind of want to, I don't want to just always harp on about the, you know, the mechanisms and, and bore you with all the physiology. Um, there, there are things you can do, you know. Um, there's a, a class of, of compounds and, and herbs and things like that um, that are called adaptogens. They're adaptogenic compounds or adaptogenic herbs. Um, the most probably well-known would be ashwagandha. Uh, a lot of people take ashwagandha uh, for their adrenals or for their stress physiology. And um, an, an adaptogen is, I like to kind of describe adaptogens as sort of a magic herb, <laughs> which sounds kind of silly. But what I mean by that is typically you take a, an herb or you take um, a, a pharmaceutical drug or, or something like that. And you take it for a reason because you, you know that it's going to give you a predictable effect. Right? That's the hope. You kind of know what it's going to do. Um, and so you can be very strategic that way. Well, adaptogens sort of help you adapt to stress physiology, and it'll help your adrenal system do whatever it needs to do. So what I mean by that is, let's just say you have high cortisol. Adaptogens will help you lower your cortisol. And maybe you have low cortisol. It's going to help you raise your cortisol. The same herbs, right? It's usually it's like a different drug or a different herb for you know raising and lowering something. But in this case, it does whatever you need it to do. The same can be said for somebody who has like a really wacky cortisol rhythm where it's just like zigzaggy all day long. It's there's no smoothness to it. Or maybe the the, the rhythm is completely flipped. I've seen that where it's low in the morning, high at night. Um, those people are not feeling great. But the same formulas, the same herbs can help because they help by working with the brain primarily, a central nervous system approach. The, the hypothalamus controls quantity of release, like I just mentioned a minute ago, high or low, am I, am I kicking out enough cortisol? It, it, that's very directed by the hypothalamus. And then there's another structure in the, in the medial temporal lobe of the brain to the sides, kind of, yeah, by your ears, kind of by your temples, and um, called the hippocampus. Now, typically the hippocampus is in charge of, you know, converting short to long-term memories, and it's what goes in Alzheimer's and all that business. Um, but it also helps control the circadian rhythm, right, of, of cortisol. So... The, the adaptogens tend to work in that, those central nervous system areas. 
so that it gets the ball rolling so that it's brain, pituitary gland, adrenal gland all talking better to each other. There's things you can do on top of that that can be more strategic, which really require the, the saliva test, um, that longer look at the hormones over a course of a day to kind of help you decide what next, right? Um, I'll give you two examples. Um, there is a compound called phosphatidylserine. Phosphatidylserine, it's a mouthful. Um, but phosphatidylserine um, can be used to help um, lower cortisol. That's how it's classically used to help, you know, when you have high cortisol, it can really help add that. So let's just say you have, you know, a bump in your afternoon where your cortisol takes an inappropriate surge and then it goes back to normal. Um, you might want to, somewhere in the middle of your day, supplement with phosphatidylserine. And uh, you can do that in a pill form or, you know, sometimes it's even best if you do it through a transdermal cream. That's kind of how I tend to use it. Uh, it avoids the gut. You can get in some pretty good doses through the skin, just like a hormone cream. Um, so that might be one way to do it. Another would be um, licorice root. Licorice root actually is a... Is a it, it's a an herb used in Chinese medicine quite extensively, um, but it has compounds in it that slow the breakdown of uh, cortisol. So, you know, cortisol breaks down like anything else. It doesn't have a super long half-life in your body. So by, by ingesting the, this licorice root compounds, you can kind of slow the breakdown of cortisol so you get to use what you have longer. So for somebody who's really dragging on the ground with low energy and their cortisol levels are low, adding in some licorice root, either you know, throughout the day or strategically timed based on what you find on your, pen, on your saliva panel. That might be an example of, of what to do there. Some, some risks, um, phosphatidylserine has very few risks that I know of, um, if any. Licorice root, though, should be used with caution with people that have hypertension, meaning high blood pressure, because if that's happening, you could make their blood pressure worse. So if you're on the fence with blood pressure, you might want to take a little licorice root, check your blood pressure before and after, be safe about it. You know, you practitioners out there who might be listening, please remember this. There are drug-herb interactions, so be wary of somebody already on blood pressure medications, for example. Um, we, we need to be aware of what we are providing the population who is also medicated, right, and has pathology out there. So um, anyways, adaptogens can be used pretty well for anything for anybody um, with a few exceptions, you know, but, but they're rare. So that's what I have to say up front about the adrenal system. And like I've mentioned in the past, I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of getting through some fundamental concepts here. For, for those of you who have followed along or, or started back from one and caught me later in my, my podcast journey here, um, but you're going to find that when I talk about, you know, let's just say autoimmune disease, you know, all of these topics are going to start coming back up, right? How does autoimmune disease impact adrenal function? And how does adrenal function impact autoimmune disease, right? There, there is a bi-directional issue with a lot of things in our physiology. So that's, that's where the, the art comes in with, with medicine, right? It's not all science. It's how do you appreciate the larger scope of what's happening and, and weave them together in such a way that it's, it's most beneficial for the patient. So uh, I hope that you found this information helpful because uh, adrenals, are a big topic out there and you will hear it. <laughs> and if you've heard it now for the first time, now you're gonna start hearing it everywhere because it'll be on your radar. Um, 
don't be satisfied with the simple answers. There's always more. Right? So thank you for your time and attention. I do appreciate you, and uh, I look forward to our next episode here shortly. Take care. This is a functional approach with Dr. Jim Chaltis. Bye-bye.